Well, it is. It's bananas over here. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is like beyond five bananas. This is like the entire grocery store aisle of bananas, plus a pudding and some vanilla wafers. <laughs> like, I thought that, okay, when we did old school categories before, that felt bananas. But now, this today, it's really, we have a lot to talk about. Everyone, uh, welcome to Faded Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I write romance novels and I read romance novels. I'm Jen Prokop. I'm a romance reader and critic. And we have a special guest with us today. Yay! Steve Amadown, welcome. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. I'm I'm so excited to be here to to like go full Herbie Goes Bananas over here. <laughs> We are so excited to have you. Steve, we have been Twitter friends, all of us, for so long. And uh, tell everybody tell everybody about yourself. Sure. So I am the Manuscripts and Outreach Archivist at the Brown Popular Culture Library at Bowling Green State University, which is always a mouthful. Um, and I read romance. I write about romance history on Twitter and uh, Instagram and other places. And uh, yeah, so we we are the oldest and most comprehensive repository of popular culture items uh, in the country, starting back in 1969. Uh, and I've been here since 2016. So. It feels like um, your library is like Romance Valhalla. <laughs> it is kind of. It, I think unintentionally so, but it's one of the. It's a really unique collection and. Uh, we're always excited to highlight it, and I, I just love digging into it. I was supposed to go with best friend Kelly in March. We had planned a little field trip to visit the library in Steve, and then it got canceled because of coronavirus, and I know people dealt with bigger things, but it was like a real disappointment for me that we didn't get a chance to go. I know. And for me, I was looking forward to the, to the text. From it. Oh, yeah. It was going to be wild. I was going to be real ridiculous up in that library. I was going to be like secretly <laughs> taking pictures of myself with like books from my child. It was going to be amazing. I, I had a lot of plans. Yeah, we were going to have a great year. Yeah, you had a big, a big conference planned. Yeah, we had a conference planned for April that was going to include Alyssa Cole. Um, and we were going to have a lot of fun. And here we are after, after the fact. So, yeah. Well, Someday soon, we'll get back to it. But right now, it's you and all those wonderful books just holed up in a, in a building in Ohio. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, they're a worse place to shelter, things to shelter in place. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, well, so, Jen, tell our listeners what we're doing today. <laughs> because I read this crazy book. Yeah. So... We had, a, I think, part of this is we had a really interesting conversation with Steve about really going back to some of the original acquisitions and books that were published under Vivian Stevens. And as you know, or maybe you don't, and we'll have Steve talk more about it, this year RWA is um, dropping the Rita and forming a new, um, a new uh, award in 
honor of the real founder of RWA and sort of the founder of kind of category romance and romance in America. And so we thought it would be like a really cool exercise to sort of like dig into Vivian's history and kind of her imprint on the genre, including going back and reading some really early category romances. So um, I think we all read some different things. Um, I read uh, Candlelight Ecstasy Number 2, Gentle Pirate by Jane Castle, also known as Jane Ann Krenz. Which, fun fact, is not a historical. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's I not. I mean, it's a historical in the sense that, wow, the 80s yes. were wild. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then, and then, Steve, the other one we read was, um, uh, I'm like, couldn't even hesitate to say this title, everybody. <laughs> so it was, yeah, Morning Rose, Evening Savage by Amy Lauren, who is, uh, that's the pen name of Joan Hole. And that was a, was it a Mills and Boone? Like, I sort of was trying to, like, dig into this one. It was... So it was a uh, candlelight romance. So it predates ecstasy by, uh, I want to say, six or eight months. Okay. So these, for both of our, both of these were 1980, I believe. Mm -hmm. And then, Sarah, what did you take a look at? I read uh, Harlequin American Romance number one, Tomorrow's Promise by Sandra Brown, um, which was, which actually has a, um, an editorial letter in the front of it from Vivian Stevens, which is not uncommon for categories to have the editors write you a little note at the beginning. Um, but it was, this might be the only book I've ever held in my hand that has one from Vivian because she was not editorial director for Harlequin American for very long. And maybe Steve could kind of introduce these early categories in America for us because they existed prior to, they existed outside America for much longer. So Steve, do you mind sort of bringing everyone up to speed on how categories came to be here? Sure. So, uh, you know, if you go all the way back, so Harlequin uh, was founded in Canada uh, in the 19... <laughs> the 1900s. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> it was founded back in the day. Um, there you go. <laughs> and in the 40s and 50s, they were mostly reprinting paperbacks from other publishers, which was a pretty common practice among publishers at the time. Um, in the 1950s, they started printing uh, nurse romances, um, which became incredibly popular. And they started also reprinting Harlo or, uh, Mills and Boone books from England, um, which eventually became their bread and butter. And so from sort of the mid-50s through 1974, Harlequin was pretty much exclusively reprinting Mills and Boone books. There were other publishers publishing romance at the time. So Avon, obviously, in the 1970s with Avon Ladies, um, Kathleen Woodywis, and, um, and that group, as well as there were um, Regency romances and things like that. But were we talk when we talk about that, I mean, when we talk about the early days of Avon, so you and I have, we worked together. I was lucky enough for, you were amazing when we were putting together that sort of loose history of the, the originals for the Rita ceremony last year. Um, and we, and, and 
I feel like I know really well the history of the single title romance, the Avon, the Avon ladies, the Avon historicals. Um, and so I'm curious when you say, um, you know, reprints were, was everybody reprinting these categories or was, did category, was category really a Harlequin beast when it started? So there were publishers like Signet, um, and, uh, Dell, which was Candlelight, were publishing original romances at the time, but they didn't have the kind of purchase. They didn't have the the sort of clout that Harlequin... Sure. And was this all right at the same time? I mean... They were all publishing pretty much through the 70s. Okay. Um, So, like, Signet had nurse romances uh, for decades, going back to the sort of the 60s, you know, 50s and 60s into the 70s. um, And... Candlelight romance had existed for a long time, so when um, Vivian came on board, it was already, you know, in the the five hundreds in terms of book numbers. So mm-hmm. they had been around for for quite a while, but it had been really scattershot. And if you look back at the old Candlelight romance titles, it's like a historical here, a gothic there, a contemporary here. New titles or reprints? They were new titles. Okay. So are you saying at some point, like, they just were all candlelight, but they weren't really organized? Like, nurse romances and gothic romances were all just called candlelight? Right. When Dell was doing the candlelight line, it was kind of a spaghetti against the wall. Like, they were throwing <laughs> everything into that line. And there was no real organization. It didn't have a singular focus like we think of categories today, where, like, you look at the line name and you know what you're going to get. Um, the only thing you were guaranteed to get from candlelight until Vivian came aboard, uh, was a chaste romance. So no sex on the page. Mm. Um, you know, ah. basically a, a kiss on the cheek at the end kind of kind That's of situation. That's interesting. Kind of like a Lifetime movie now. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jen's favorite. Sex on the page was really an invention of Vivian and Harlequin. In terms of category. In category, it, obviously, it because really, that yeah. is different for single titles, which right. we've talked about many times on the podcast. We've talked. We've heard a lot about Vivian Stevens in the last couple of years. A lot more about her in the last few years than ever before. Unfortunately, right. she was a name that those of us who sort of cared about the history of romance knew. But recently, she's become more of a sort of romance household name. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit. I mean, is the transformation? Do you know? Are you able to speak to this? Is the transformation in category? Um, a Vivian transformation, or or is it Harlequin? In, it, it, did it come from somewhere else in Harlequin, or did it come from a different line? Um, you know, was she as transformative as we all kind of think? So I think it's a combination answer. Um, in the mid seventies, in, in partially, it seems like in response to Avon, uh, Harlequin created Harlequin Presents, which is sort of a, has a, had a little more heat. To it, it wasn't as chaste. It didn't have sex on the page, but it, it you know, it, it maybe had a little more, you know, the characters had a little more experience. And when was this? That was in the mid-70s, so that would have been um, 75, 76, somewhere around there. So when, when Janet Daly was first published in the States, it was 1976. Um, she had been published by Mills and Boone back in 74, but when she came to the States, it was with Harlequin Presents. So it was, you know, it had a little more oomph to it. But in terms of really pushing the boundary, it started with Vivian 
Stevens at Candlelight Romance, publishing Morning Rose Evening, Evening Savage, which she, you know, in interviews, she sort of talks about it as being a, a test case. She wanted to be able to prove that readers would, would sort of flock to a book that had more sensuality. I was like, I don't know what to say, except that, wow. <laughs> I didn't read this one. I couldn't get a copy of it. So could could you guys talk about the sex in it? Yes. <laughs> you know what? You know what? I'm sorry I'm making these noises. I yeah, think Jen, uh, what is wrong with you right now? <laughs> I know. It's just we did an entire series, an entire season on Cressley Cole. <laughs> I mean, so we had a category interstitial where we talked about categories from like the late 80s. Mm-hmm. And I will say that there is something really fascinating about reading a category from even five or six years earlier and just how much more regressive like those gender politics feel. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the ways that plays out is so in both in both of the books I read, I'd summarized the plot to Sarah earlier in a text as these are women who fear domineering men and they meet a domineering man and the resolution is that they learn they're secretly happy being domineered. Exactly. We talk a lot. We give a lot of lip service to like how feminist romance is. But the truth is that these plots, I feel like now have moved into something we just call dark romance. Where instead of the characters being kind of captains of industry, which they are in both of these books, these are workplace romances as well. Both of these women have jobs and they work. But right now, these domineering men have like a different kind of job. But it was so, you know, basically both of these plots are exactly the same. The man's like, so in, in Morning Rose, Evening Savage, she's an administrative assistant for an architect. He, um, her name is Tara. Um, her, his name is Alec. He's Russian, but you know, he also, they live in Pennsylvania and his family has been there for a generation. And he is a, uh, like a, he's contracted out the architect to do some work, right? That's how he, and at the beginning of the book is him basically like saying, I'm going to marry you. I really want you. I'm going to marry you. And then kind of spoiling her for all others by making it look like he's spending nights at her apartment. And it's like, really, it's very stalkery almost. I, I was really uncomfortable with the way he essentially like traps her into agreeing to get married. (laughs) And, and it's, yeah, there's a scene in the beginning where he literally, he kisses her in the office. Yeah. As like a way of marking his territory. Um, yeah, it's, there's a real dubious consent element to, to that particular book, especially. And now when was that? 1980. 1980. And was that, who was that edited by? Uh, that would have been Vivian Stevens. Okay. I think all of these are, right? All three of these are. So this, so Morning Rose Evening Savage was in the middle of this, uh, you know, chased line of romances you know, Amy Lauren and Vivian Stevens basically just drop a bomb and and it, it goes, it pushes the needle to 11 and, you know, everything else changes after that in a lot of ways. Um, but it's a really shocking book to look at, even, you know, in the context of, 
of now, but also in the context of then, how far it pushes um, a lot of the, the kind of romance tropes of, of that moment. One of the things that's really interesting to me about both of these books, and I don't know, Sarah, if this happened in the, the Sandra Brown book you read, is the women at the beginning are described using language that it feels I had this kind of epiphany where I thought when when we as readers now talk about unlikable heroines, it feels rooted in the kind of language that was on page used to describe women in these books that you just never see anymore. So several times Tara is described as sour, right? Like she's really um, like, uh, I don't know, like there's this sense that the words used to describe these women is really rooted in a kind of negativity that, again, I don't I don't know that I I see now, really. Right. Um and when I do, it feels like sort of shockingly regressive, right? So, so I, I had this moment where I thought these are books where the these are kind of classic alphas in some way, but like kind of pushed past what we would now feel comfortable with. But the difference is is that the heroines, instead of being like their match, feel like they are their. Like, uh, again, like a sort of to be conquered. I don't know, Steve. I, it was really, uh, it, I found it hard to read. It was. And I think especially, you know, when when you're sort of used to modern contemporaries, um, where there, you know, there's a, where there's a grovel, where there's, you know, the man has to learn something. Yes. And in these books, the, he learns nothing. It's more, he is revealed, Right, like his his nature is revealed through the through his actions. Well, which is a real echo of historicals, like prior to this. That was something I thought of as I was especially reading uh, Morning Rose, Evening Savage. Is it felt like a seventies historical in a lot of ways. Later in the eighties, McNaught, who we just you know did a whole episode on, but McNaught will start writing contemporaries and those contemporaries will have those sort of big historical feels to them in the mm-hmm. sense that it'll still be the alpha hero who has to learn his human, who has to sort of get in touch with his humanity in order to love. And that though, but that's single title, but it feels like, see, tomorrow's promise is not the kind of book that Jen you're describing. Yeah. Okay. It's a very different kind of book um, with a softer hero in some ways. And so maybe we should talk a little bit about that, Steve, because you've read Tomorrow's Promise, right? No, I have not read that one. I read A Treasure Worth Seeking. Okay. Uh, Which one is that? <laughs> that was Sandra. That was Sandra Brown um, writing for Ecstasy. Okay. So I don't know what number we're on in terms of Sandra Brown's books because she's written 25,000 books. Right. Um, (laughs) Right. And there's no, because this is the first of the Harlequin American line, there's no like other books by Sandra Brown page. Um, So this is Harlequin American number one. And Tomorrow's Promise is about um, the, the whole book is a political, it's political. I mean, overtly political. The mm-hmm. um, It's written in 1983. The heroine, Keeley, is the 
poster child for uh, an organization that is working to ensure that um, soldiers who have gone missing in action in um, Vietnam will not be declared dead to ensure that their um, veterans' pay still gets to the families. Okay? Um, She is a a grass widow, um, meaning her husband is missing in action. Um, And it's been years. I mean, he went missing in action in 1969. So it's been almost 15 years. Um, And she is... It begins on a plane, and she is sitting across in first class across from a—she's a reporter. She's a traffic reporter in New Orleans um, who rides, like, in the helicopter um, and reports on morning traffic. She sits um, in, in first class, and across from her is the hero who is a United States representative from Louisiana— um, and he is—she uh, is about to testify before Congress, and he's on the committee— And the whole book is about um, essentially her coming to terms with the idea that she is never going to get her like that her her first husband is dead, is gone. And she has to live her life in a different way. And this hero, the congressman, um, knows the. The beginning is uncomfortable in the sense that it is a little domineering. It's a little domineering because he knows more about her than she under she knows that he knows. Um, so he knows that she this is her backstory, but she doesn't know he knows that. And so he kiss he like sh- turns up at her hotel room and like kisses her in a hotel room and really wrecks her because she's attracted to him, but she still you know obviously feels very loyal toward her husband who might not be dead. I mean, it's complicated, but it's complicated in a really remarkable, I texted Jen this morning, like it's complicated in this intense way that the early 80s were complicated for women related to Vietnam or the end, the late 70s. I mean, we've talked a lot, Steve, I know you, you and you've heard this from us, like we've talked a lot about the way Vietnam plays out in these books over and over again as a national tragedy, but also as a social construct. And like, what did Vietnam do to families? What did it do to women? Um, how did it propel women like Keely into, who was 19 when she lost her husband, into a career? Like these kinds of things. Sandra Brown is asking a lot of questions about the repercussions of war. So in Gentle Pirate, which is not about a pirate, <laughs> right? It is It is about a man who, you know, a former Marine in Vietnam who has a hook as a hand and they never discuss exactly what happened to him. I mean, that title <laughs> right? and that, right. I mean, what? <laughs> I know. But even what's fascinating about like using pirate and savage is here. I am thinking that they're going to be keying into like really old, like r- racist when it comes to native American. Right. And it has nothing to do with it. It's just like sort of transferring these words we see over and over again in historicals. On to contemporaries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, that's a fascinating, fascinating thing. Yeah. And in this case, though, her, she has, she had met an, another man, another, she had been married very briefly. She met this man. They have this whirlwind courtship. Again, he was also a former Marine who had served in Vietnam. And she finds out essentially that he had been cheating on her all along. And then 
she um, confronts him within a week or a couple weeks of their wedding Mm -hmm. that he's been cheating. And he beats her until she is unconscious and she leaves him. Whoa. And then he dies in a car accident. And then she meets Simon, who's the man with the hook, her the real hero, and he's also a former Marine. And the entire plot of this book is like white woman in danger. And it turns out her her former, you know, her previous husband, her deceased husband, has been with a friend of his, essentially learned in Vietnam that they could, they were like bad soldiers, essentially. So they had been um, running dope, maybe, or like kind of stealing and selling American technology, and were essentially had become mercenaries. And, and like sort of the good Marines, which is Simon and a friend of his, sort of figure out that they are looking for something she has in her possession that you know, his friend is like sort of like, I need this to like keep our business going. So the whole conversation too about like kind of men who go off to Vietnam and come back having done terrible things. It was fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's interesting to sort of contrast, you know, Simon, who we don't really learn anything about in this book, you know, other than he he got a purple heart and obviously came home without a hand with like, you know, this, the mercenaries on the other hand. So it's, yeah, there's, I don't know. It's, it's a weird book and it's very much about Simon as alpha male, um, claiming, claiming his, his spot. And, you know, when you think about Jane Castle, who's Jane Ann Krentz, 10 years later writing in, um, Dangerous Men and Adventurous Women about, you know, the, the, the benefits of the alpha male, like it's right here in her first book um, on the page. Like there is, there is a beta male in the book and he just sort of meekly succumbs uh, to Simon and, and lets, lets him uh, take Kirsten. And um, yeah, so there are layers to this one, which is really interesting. And there's a kidnapping. Oh yeah. In a category, which seems wild. (laughs) There was like a (laughs) Well, maybe wild for the early ones, but like Harlequin Presents sure sure leans into kidnapping throughout the late 80s and 90s. Kidnapping by the hero, I assume? No. No, No. it's a totally different person. The the, the hero saves her. Oh, right, right, right. Sure. She's the the bad Vietnam vets come for her. Sarah said something like privately to me the other day. And I feel like for you've all heard me saying a million times, I want to talk about Vietnam and its impact on like, sort of like, this is like a really interesting, we talk about, it's a really interesting route in the romance tree. Right. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons I think I've really struggled with like fully committing to it is I don't know how to talk about Vietnam heroes without talking about Linda Howard. And I never want to talk about Linda Howard on the podcast except for what I just said. (laughs) And I think that that's like, that's what's tricky is like, you know, like it's problem. It's like our, you know, these stories are really coming from like a, a part of the, a branch of the romance tree, which I now really don't want to have anything to do with. And I don't know what to, how I feel about that. I mean, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. I don't think we have to talk about one particular author in order to, yeah. Um, in order to tackle Vietnam. I mean, all three all three of these books have Vietnam in in them, or is the or Morning Rose, Evening Savage a separate thing? 
No, it, it didn't. Boy, that really yeah. sounds like a historical. Just from yeah. everything you described about it, it just it it sounds like somebody it took does. a historical and made it a contemporary. Um, which, you know, let's be clear, is not an uncommon thing in the DNA of romance, right? Like, we've talked a thousand times about how paranormal is historicals, like those old school historicals, moved into a new setting. Um, and certainly we see it over and over and again in contemporary, just like people lifting up historical tropes and setting them down in contemporaries. And vice versa. So I don't mean that right to be an insulting thing at all. I just mean I think that when what we're clearly looking at in the early 80s is this sort of movement to a more relatable heroine um, mm-hmm. in terms of what readers were dealing with. And I do think there's something I really want to talk about the age of these heroines, too. I don't know how old your heroines were, but mine is in her early 30s. I mean, like, she got married at 19 and has spent, you know, 15 years alone dealing with the potential loss of her husband, who does, in fact, spoiler, turn out to be dead. Um, Because she had to—that was the one question, right? Like, how is she going to—is this guy going to turn up? Is I really thought that this guy was going to turn up, but it was not. It was a very, like, calm— there is a helicopter crash, but other than that, <laughs> everything else is very calm. Um, so, but I, but I think there's something too. We talked about this too with Sandra Brown. I mean, it was also Sandra Brown, but when we did the Texas Chase episode, um, and during our old school category episode, we talked about a lot of these heroines are older, and. I, I'm sort of curious because it's coming from it's coming off a a wave or not even coming off. But at the same time, historicals were tackling every historical heroine in the 80s was like 18. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In um, Morning Rose, she's like 24. In Gentle Pirate, she's like 29. Yeah. Older. Older. And the thing that's interesting, though, is for both of them on page, they both think, well, I kind of. Should I settle? Because, you know, I'm I'm old now. My man, you know, my true love's not going to come along. And so there's this sense for both of them that, like, time is ticking away, that they're, Mm -hmm. you know, that they're maybe past their prime in their 20s, which to me now just seems real wild. And I think this is some of some of Vivian's influence where she was looking at it as why aren't the heroines older? Um, You know, why do they have to all be 18, 19 Blushing Brides never kissed a boy before. Um, you know, if you look at, there there were only a few studies done of romance readers in the early 80s. But at that time, you know, when these books were published, the average romance reader was 50 and over. Sure. And so Vivian saw, hey, if we pull these right. heroines, A, into the 20th century, and B, into their 20s, maybe we can get a younger readership to pick them up. This would have been also like really in that big divorce boom, right? Where so many divorces were happening for women who did get married so young. Maybe there was a sense that these stories that were were those readers going to pick up books about 18 and 19 year old women falling in love and getting married and think like, no way, like, wait till you're older, you're going to know better. I might have felt that way. I might have, like, 100% agreed with that, you know, a week ago. But after reading this book and then thinking more and coming off the heels, on the heels of the um, the McNaught we just read and the discussion that we had sort of vaguely about war and, and potentially Vietnam having an impact on this, I really think that, 
you know, you we keep coming back to Vietnam as a piece of this puzzle. And the impact that Vietnam had on women and home is it cannot be over overstated. And so and I think that um, a lot of these women uh, of a certain age, women who had married young and and seen their husbands and brothers go off to war and fathers in many cases go off to war and come back changed. Yeah. Or not come back at all. Right. Mm -hmm. Suddenly we have a generation of women who can't, I don't know how to phrase this without it potentially being offensive. And I, I, but they can't rely on men to, you know, be a stable force. Well, that's explicit in Gentle Pirate, right? Like she married a man she thought was like her father who had fought in World War II. And she thought she was landing a good, solid man. He had done, right, he checked all the right boxes. And instead, he cheated on her. He, uh, like, violently abused her. And she had no choice but to leave. And so her being gun-shy with Simon, it's explicit. Like, is he the exact same type of man? I thought this, I I was doing what I was supposed to do. You marry a man who comes home from war. That's what our parents did. Our parents married winners, right, who came home heroes. And, like, the, this generation of women married men who came home to a very different climate and who suddenly had and who had no support network, no way to articulate the no way to no capacity to articulate because men just simply aren't taught to articulate their feelings. A sentence which is embedded into tomorrow's promise about veterans, right, that they could not speak their emotions coming home and on top of it were so wrecked by the experience of going to war and seeing the things that they've seen again the things that they've seen explicitly articulated on the page in tomorrow's promise and so when they come when and the women had to pick up all of that slack right we've talked so many times over the course of the last two years about emotional work and the work that women have to do and the way that and the the appeal of the alpha hero and the billionaire hero and the hero who will take care of you and it just feels so packed in here in a real social commentary and and i would add on to that that the late 70s were also there was a financial crisis going on <clears throat> And so more and more women had to go to work. Um, You know, it wasn't just women who were graduating high school and went to work to find a husband. More and more women had to actually go to work to earn a paycheck so that, you know, you could afford food and a house. Um, And I think that plays into the Vietnam thing as well, because these men were coming home and they weren't able to just take over as sole breadwinners. You know, the women had a role to play right, in that they as had well. No, they had no role to step overtly back into. I mean, there were no jobs that were protected for them in the way that they were in World War II. I mean, it's a—it's really—how how many times do I say on a daily basis, like, oh, romance iterates the world that it's being—that it's in? But, like, it's no more clear than in these books, it feels like. Oh, absolutely. Well, and I think then the other way of potentially reading— these stories of like domineering men is like, like the war disappointed me, but I can come home and still be the king of my household. 
right? Like, I can put things to right in this way, in this relationship. I mean, it's really fascinating. In Morning Rose, Evening Savage, she is, you know, she's pretty young, but she went to, like, business school and, you know, I don't, to become an administrative assistant, but she's very successful and, and well-paid, and she lives at home for a couple years but cannot stand how controlling her father is. So she moves out onto her own. And she lives on her own for a couple of years. But then when she agrees to marriage with Alec, he forces her back to move back home. Well, you're going to be working on the wedding so much with your mother. Why don't you just move back home? Oof. That was, was so weird. It was so <laughs> weird. <laughs> weird right? It was so weird. At and what it was point just, do they have sex over the course of this relationship? After the wedding. Really? And he wants to, and she keeps saying, like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to. I mean, like, back to the sex thing. And it, the other thing about the sex part, I would say, is, um, the like, the dubious consent thing, the way it plays out is he's going to, like, kiss her and kind of have access to her body. And then she cannot help but be swept away by it. Oh, that's in this, too. That kind of, like, I'm... I'm so consumed by him, I can't think. Yes. I can't say no because I have no capacity for thought. Right. It's very, like, passive. Like, there's no sense that these women have any, like, they're, like, kind of void of sexual desire until a man, the right man, awakens it. Yeah. You know, but this goes back to the Susan Elizabeth Phillips argument, which she's always, always saying is good girls don't give it up. Right. So there is a there has to be a balance for readers like you can't just have a a heroine in 1983 want it and take it. Right. And this I mean, in my book, in Tomorrow's Promise, I mean, she also I want to talk about friends. She has actually this this really several really wonderful women in her life who are very supportive and like understand what she's going through in a cool way. But that feels like a Sandra Brown tell. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, but the, but separate from that, the, the, the sex part of this, she also has that thing that we saw so many times whenever you had a heroine who had previously been married, which is she's never found pleasure. Mm-hmm. Like the pleasure of sex with her first husband was like young kids who loved each other pleasure. Right. But like she's never had like really good sex. And he says, like, I'm not world famous, but I'm getting there. Like in this like kind of gross, like Burt Reynolds y kind of way. Like <laughs> I every once in a while in a modern romance I've read that pops up and it it infuriates me. I'm like, you know what, we need to like, and I understand, like, you're going to have the best sex of your life now with this true love and a romance, but, like, that doesn't mean all the other sex you've ever had is, is garbage. And I was surprised in a recent book, in a book published in the last couple of years, I sort of, she was deeply and profoundly in love with her husband and then, like, but never had an orgasm until this guy. And I was like, come on. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. You know, that in, in our modern world, like, that, that sort of plot. It feels, again, like really regressive, but it doesn't shock me here. But it does like the sensuality thing, like Vivian bringing that into these books. I definitely feel like the the sense that there's like a mind body disconnect almost and that somehow being in this relationship is going to make all those pieces like click back into place. That feels 
like maybe is that the thing that she, I mean, and definitely there's more kissing on page. Like there's talk of nipples. You know what I mean? Like there's caresses. I mean, you know, that that kind of thing, I, I guess, is part of it. But to me, like maybe that's where it feels kind of progressive is this sense that like uh, in the best possible reading of it. Right. Somehow I was disconnected from this part of myself and now it's going to I'm gonna, we're going to find it together. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think Tara in Morning Rose has this moment where she she hatches this plan where she's like, OK, we're going to get married, but I'm not going to sleep with you. And as soon as we get married, I'm going to demand a divorce. <laughs> it's really wild. That it, is like, really, this was the best yes. thing you could come up with. It's amazing. Um, but then, there, yeah, there's like this, she has this sense of her own sexuality as power, but it, it kind of, like, she just sort of crumbles once they get into his apartment, you know, after the wedding. Hijinks ensue. Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. I need to. I'm, <laughs> I know. I'm like, I need to go back. Wait, what happens after? What is the, what is <laughs> okay, the plan? Let me tell you the plot of this book. Because I, yeah. I, I don't know if I really did it justice. So she, Tara works in this like architect firm and his Alec is a client. And he like basically at the beginning is like, we're going to get married. You're the one for me. I really want you. And the way that he exerts this, like, pressure on her is by making it appear that they are already lovers. And she is essentially experiences shame from all of the people in the office and from her family that she is essentially now an impure woman. Now, again, I have read this recently in a recent romance and was like, I don't like it. In 1980, I was like, all right. So her father calls her home and yells at her like you've brought shame upon the family. A guy at work is like... Well, once you're done with him, how about you get with me? I mean, he parks outside your house every night. We all know what's going on. And she finally figures out that he has essentially spoiled her, like without ever doing anything by Mm. making it look this way. Mm -hmm. So he demand, you know, he's like, I want to get married. And, you know, why he doesn't just say I like you, what we don't know. But um, (laughs) well, there'd be no book then. Right. Sure. (laughs) And so she essentially feels so backed into a corner that she is going to agree to marry him only to essentially divorce him after, like to essentially this will be the way she gets her revenge, I guess. But then on their wedding night, she's so swept away by this passion. You know, they have like the greatest sex ever, essentially. Now, the part that's really interesting, though, is this does not fix the problem. They she's like wakes up the next morning and is like, I'm leaving. (laughs) I mean, it's just none of it really makes any sense. I'll be honest with you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I kind of read it in like a few states. Yeah. Well, and then at the end, you know, they exchange their vows of true love. And I'm like, I don't understand why these two love each other. Like, I don't get it. (laughs) Yeah, that that part of the plot just it, it comes up very suddenly where where she's hatched this plan. And then, like, all of a sudden, they're married. Oh, yeah, it's all, and, it's really and fast. And then it's like, wait, 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 slow down. And, like, her mother uh, tells her that her, her dad isn't as bad as she thinks he is, um, you know, that his domineering came from a place of love. And, it, right. you know, it sets all these sort of uh, pins in the lock for her. Is this all right at the very end? 
I, you know what? I don't know. There's several chapters after the wedding where they're still kind of at odds until they figure it out. But here's what I would, here's what I will say. And I wonder if this is where Vivian was sort of backed into a corner with, I want to put sex, I want to put sex on page or I want to put sensuality on page, Mm -hmm. but I know that it cannot happen outside of the bounds of marriage. So Mm. all of these books are marriage plot books, right? We have to get them married before they can have sex, but the book can't end there. There has to be some further conflict, right? And so I wonder if that wasn't why these plots feel wrong is because, and I I do, I got to, you know, I, I, maybe we need to write her a letter. Like, I wonder if there was pressure to say, like, if you want there to be sex in the books or sex on page, we can't have them not be married. It's 1980, for God's sakes. Well, interestingly, there's definitely a shift because that might have been a Dell rule. Because mm. by the time we get to Harlequin, here we are, Harlequin number one, they have sex before marriage. There's a lot of like, the whole plot is if they get caught, mm. there's an evil reporter. Um, and if they get caught, his he's plan, the hero's planning to run for Senate. Okay. And like his senatorial... First of all, if they get caught, there's this back and forth because he's gonna he's on the committee that's supposed to decide whether the bill should go to Congress or not for a vote, right? So there's a conflict of interest issue. But the theory is if they get caught, you know, she's argue out here arguing that her husband is still alive potentially. So there's that, and then added problem that he's running for Senate, and it could really torque his campaign. So there's lots of conflict about whether or not they get actually caught. But the marriage is non a non-issue. I mean, it's it doesn't even come. I mean, it. She's married ostensibly for you know ninety percent of the book until she nearly dies in a helicopter crash and sees her husband in like her former husband in like a fiery heaven sequence. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> right. real weird. <laughs> um, I have to add one more thing, which is there is a line on like. 98% of the way through the book, like three pages from the end, where she wakes up in a, in a hospital bed because she's been in a helicopter crash. And he's there and he and she's like, what happened to Joe, the pilot? And he's like, Joe landed the helicopter in the Superdome roof or parking lot, just like always. And she's like, landed it? Because everyone's like, wait a second, how'd she get hurt if the, <laughs> if the helicopter was landed what? and everyone's safe? And the hero says, don't worry about it. All the details will be filled in later. (laughs) And I'm like, this is magnificent because the truth is readers are like, fine. I was like, who cares? Who cares? Everything's fine. (laughs) No one's hurt. But like we have the important information we need from the fiery. Right. I'm back pocketing. Don't worry about it. We'll fill in the details later. (laughs) So so in in this other Sandra Brown that I read, um, which was. Uh, a treasure, a treasure worth seeking, which is really hard to say. Um, so this is a book where it's a, a woman, so it's an ecstasy book. So it's a candlelight Dell book. Um, th- there's the Aaron O'Shea, who's the the main character, is a, a fashion mogul in in Houston, um, and so she travels to San Francisco to find her long lost lo- long lost brother. Finds out that. Uh, he's actually embezzling money from a bank, et cetera, et cetera. It gets a little weird. But so not only is, so there's sex on page with the hero before they're married. Um, 
And then afterwards, she gets pregnant because of that sex. And they, they meet up in Houston, and they're talking about abortion on page. Wow. Um, and this was 1982. So this is just two years after Gentle Pirate. So it's a really interesting evolution. And that's also Sandra Brown. Yes. And that's also Candlelight. It's also Candlelight. So it would have been one of the last books that Vivian purchased for Candlelight before she went to Harlequin. She, uh, Sandra Brown actually dedicates the book to Vivian Stevens. Oh, wow. Well, and I wonder if that's it. I wonder if it's just like we got to figure out how to get this on page and then it does sell and then we can like unthrottle, like, right, like we can decouple it from marriage mm-hmm. maybe like pretty quickly. I mean, it's it's really interesting the way like the evolution of this. And then, you know, by what, 1987, when Sarah and I were reading like Love Swept, when does Love Swept start with Carolyn Nichols? Is that 85? 85, I think. Yeah. I mean, so when you think about how fast that goes from kind of within the bounds of marriage to to not, <laughs> you know, like that, it's it's really interesting. And I do think like it has it must have a lot to do with um, like changing sexual mores, but also like sort of the divorce generation and, you know, just the idea that like, hey, look, people are going to read these books like there's less of a feeling of. I don't know, judgment from outside mm-hmm. that exists on page, but also maybe from readers. And I think there's also something very American about this evolution. Mm. So again, until 1976, Americans had not read American category romance authors. Right. Really, in, right. in any sort of volume. You know, there were small publishers doing it. But, you know... After that, you start to see, well, this needs to reflect our cultural values, not, not sort of English, English mm. values. Yeah. I cut my teeth as a romance reader in England in the summers because my, my, my grandmother was English um, in like their tiny little town library where there was a rack of Mills and Boons, like nurse doctor romances. And there's not there's are very chaste, those books. Um, so I think you're right that there is a very different market in the United States, but also thinking just about how we talk in the market, you know, from the business side of romance about the difference between historical readers and contemporary readers and category readers versus single title readers, which now I think the lines are getting a little more blurry because of digital, you know, indie presses um, and, and indie publishing. But Prior to this sort of new new world, there was such a discussion of those readers were very siloed. If you read, you know, I don't know, Rosemary Rogers and Judith McNaught, you did not read category. Right. And I never knew because I sort of read all around. It never made much sense to me. You know, five years ago when somebody said like, oh, well, if you're a historical reader, you don't read contemporaries. But now, I mean, it's true. You know, you often run into readers who just absolutely don't read outside of what they always read. And I think the category lines had such a lock on readers. They would ship your books to your house. Sure. You didn't have to go anywhere. It's not something you had to worry about. And I think that's really... We talk a lot about the Kindle revolution, meaning not ever having to worry about being judged out in the world for what you are reading or buying. 
maybe them sending books to your house essentially served the same function. So why would you get outside of your comfort zone if you didn't want to deal with that? I mean, I don't know. Also, you were 14 and they wouldn't sell them to you at the B. Dalton. (laughs) (laughs) Is that true? (laughs) No, they absolutely. You know what? I want to say this. Like I grew up in suburban Ohio and I there is a a used bookstore near my house. I did a lot of shopping at. Now I drove myself at this point. So I was a little older because I would like go. This would be like my haunts. I'd go to the bookstore and I'd go to the, like the mall. And I never, ever once had a bookseller or a librarian tell me I could not check out or read what I wanted. Bless, bless suburban Cleveland. (laughs) I feel like now we're going to have a revolution of, of readers in however many years who I hope are going to be like, yeah, I found a bunch of romances in the little free library on my block. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Steve, before we wrap up, I guess I just have one more question about like, when we look at these in light of like Vivian's influence, Mm -hmm. and then you said she like went to Harlequin, like what was the arc of her, like her career? Like, so she started... I mean, we all know the story of the seminal story of her going to Texas and like sort of, you know, kind of realizing she could bring romance to America. But right. um, Like, where did it go after these kind of formative books that she like really kind of founded these lines? So she went to Harlequin in uh, 82 and 83 and was charged with creating American romance and also opening their New York office. So she kind of had this, this dual role uh, going into Harlequin. She was only there for, I want to say, a year. Um, and it, it had a lot to do with her vision versus the sort of corporate ver- vision Toronto. of Harlequin. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, after that, I know, I think she went to a few different um, of the book packagers, I, I believe she worked with some of those for a while. And then she sort of became uh, an agent and uh, wrote a romance novel herself um, and, and became kind of a mentor. I know that um, she was Beverly Jenkins' first agent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, she helped launch several careers even even after that fact. There, I mean, Sandra Kitt is very public about her own experiences at Harlequin Mm -hmm. um, with Vivian and then after Vivian, because Sandra's first book was uh, white characters, white main characters. Mm -hmm. And then her second book was Adam and Eva, which is two black characters. And Vivian basically said, like, I'm going to I'm going to buy this book and I'm going to publish the hell out of it. Right. Um, and then things changed at Harlequin pretty quickly. I mean, within mm-hmm. as I mean, as you just said, within a year. Right. And and so the 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 lore became that, you know, because that book came out and quote unquote didn't do well, um, it was, you know, all ethnic romance failed after that point. But it's not, that's not really the case. So, yeah. It doesn't seem like that is the case. That might have been the lore in Toronto, but it is not. I mean, Sanders pretty forthright about her numbers. And her her argument is it sold the same. 
as the right, other. exactly. And and you know, Romantic Times and Catherine Falk very much pushed this idea that, um, you know, what ethnic romance needed was uh, I she changed it all the time, but like a black Janet Daly or a, a Latina Jude Devereaux or something, you know, no. something like that. Um, and a, a superstar, right? Exactly. That it had to be a superstar, and and that really wasn't the case for white authors. So it was, it, right. it was this really disingenuous. Well, argument. and there was also that magnificent article which we will link to in show notes, everyone, um, about uh, M- Marisa de Zavala, mm-hmm. right. and um, and another another Asian author who was never published, right? Um, who C. E. Vivian had acquired. And then they just killed those books or whatever. And a native, a native author, too, I think. A Native so American author. That's that's tricky because so the the native quote unquote native author was Jean Hager. Oh. Um, who was not native? Mm. Her, oh well. She, in the biographies that that you read about her, I think it's her grandmother identified as native. Sure. So, but you know, she wrote this book, um, the title of which escapes me at the moment. But it was it was two Native American characters falling in love and having a very normal love story, which was you know radical for its moment. It's also one of the only romances I've read um, that has an archivist as a main character. Oh. <laughs> awesome! That's amazing. Oh, actually, although isn't the isn't the heroine of Gentle Pirate is sort of an, well, she's a corporate librarian, but she there's is a corporate, definitely... Right, she's a corporate librarian, which Jane Ann Krentz was before she published this book. Yeah, for like a nuclear company, the whole thing is fascinating. Steve, there's one more thing, though, kind of related to this, though, and I can't remember, I think it was you, who you had dug into Candlelight Ecstasy, what was the, f- I, there was a book we were all trying to find, and and it was like impossible to get our hands on, right? It was Entwined Destiny. There you go. Oh, so hard to find. It is. And there's a reason for that. Yeah. So um, Entwined Destinies was written by uh, LCB Washington uh, under the pen name uh, Rosalind Wells. And it was, I forget what number it was. It it was a regular candlelight. Um, And... It, it was the first time a black author had written for a category publisher um, and had included black characters uh, that we know of. I feel like, you know, I always have to put that condition on it. Um, but so, you know, they had this, this was Vivian's sort of tour de force. She was really going to promote the heck out of this book. Um, if you, you know, I've dug into the Roma- Romantic Times files and there's all these articles from like Publishers Weekly talking about they were going to have uh, a whole television campaign around, quote-unquote, ethnic romance um, and entwined destinies, that it was going to... There's an article in the New York Times that says it was getting a print run of 125,000. Um, which is great which for... Was, it was less than Harlequin was doing, but it was great, for especially for a, a first debut. book. A debut, yeah. Right. right. But what seems to have happened is at some point that got cut in half. And they printed something like 60,000 copies. Fun fact, Steve, you must know that print runs are always inflated. Right? Oh, absolutely. Almost yeah. by double, always. Well, and so she sold like 45,000 of these books. But say where? 
but they were mostly shipped to urban markets. Of course. So it was this very narrow thing where not a lot of copies were sent in, in relative terms. And then, you know, whatever, because it was a category, it, it would have sure. gotten remaindered after a instantly. couple of months. Yeah, instantly. And so it's amazing that you can find any of these copies at all. At all. Yeah. And there, I mean, Lequette just got one uh, a couple of weeks ago and it was like $300, I think, or something. Right. And so in the 90s, Elsie reprinted it with Genesis Press, um, which was based out of Mississippi, I believe. Um, but it was an indie, indie publisher, uh, black-owned, printing mostly black authors. Um, but that was, that's the only other printing that it ever had. Um, so they're all really hard to find. Well, and it feels to me like there's like a direct correlation then to the stories you hear about borders, right? Like segregating black authors into like of romance into African-American fiction rather than being shelled with romance. And so, you know, if you make it impossible for readers to find these books, then you could sideline, you can sideline an entire generation of authors and then do it again the next generation. And you, have we talked about the Walden ladies on the podcast yet? No, I don't think so. Steve, do you know about the Walden ladies? No, tell me more. Okay, so apparently, and this is from, you know, somebody who was around long before me, um, when Walden books existed, there were five women and they literally were called in the industry, the Walden ladies. And they worked for Walden Books, but they were floor sales. They were salespeople. Like they worked in in stores in five places in the country, and they basically were the romance buyers for all of Walden Books. These five women, and there was like one in Seattle, and one in Texas, and one you know in I don't know where Florida. Like they were in random places, probably mid the Midwest, and um, they decided what the books were. That, that who the authors were that were promoted by Walden, what the books Walden would buy were. And they, like, publishers would fly them into New York and wine and dine them and show them covers. And they got, they had so much immense power, these five women. And, I mean, if you were, if, if they didn't like you, you didn't right. succeed. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking, I mean, talk about gatekeeping, right? Yeah. Right. Um, because there are so many. I think we're, especially right now in publishing, we are talking so much about gatekeeping and who is who who the gatekeeper gatekeepers are. But often we leave out the buyers at the major stores who are, I mean, I know because I, I have been on the right, I'm, I'm a writer, right? So I've been on the side of like, you have to go to this cocktail party. I'm going to introduce you to the buyer for, for borders and you better show, you know, and that's because he's everything or she's everything to you. And I mean, I can remember meeting Sue Grimshaw for the first time and literally having someone like whisper in my ear, like, Make sure Sue likes you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if those gatekeepers are are white women, exactly, <laughs> and if they're openly racist, then you can see like the dramatic effect it's going to have on romance for generations. Sure. Right. And and also, I think you know how it's training 
readers to think, uh, you know, again, generation after generation, that romance is only looks a certain way and and has certain kinds of people. And so I think it's just really like when we talk about unearthing these histories that Vivian Stevens, like the amazing things she was doing for romance, but that like though also the people that stood in her way. Yeah, and I, I think also, you know, you can throw romantic times into that mix as well because mm. they were servicing a lot of the indie bookstores that existed at the time. They had like the bookstores that care list. Sure. Romantic Times magazine was... I mean, was it the juggernaut that everybody seems to to believe? Because, of course, it was there. I've been writing for 11 years. And so in the early years, the first sort of five years, RT reviews were important. But, you know, there was a, a real sense that you could be reviewed in other places. And so they weren't essential. I think in the early 80s, it, it was the paper of record. Sure. And Catherine Falk was everywhere. Right. Yeah, she was on TV, she was in documentaries, all of this stuff. Lady Barrow. Mm-hmm. And yeah. she made herself a superstar. And like you said, did TV and everything. And yeah, she was sort of molding herself after Barbara Cartland in of a lot of ways. Of course she was. That makes perfect sense. And and sort of becoming a queen of all media. Uh-huh. Um, you know, so she was writing books about how to write romance. Right. She was having she she um, when I first started writing, there was she was running these like tours where you could go. You could pay for like a two week tour of Scotland with Jude Mm -hmm. Devereaux and she would take you like around all the places that were important. Um, You know, she was a huge deal. And I think also like RT, but RT had the same reviewers for, Mm -hmm. as my mom would say, donkey's ears. Like, right? Like, it was always... And then there was that weird reviewer who everybody thought was Catherine Falk. Would you talk about that person? (laughs) So, yeah, so Flavia Knightsbridge. Flavia Knightsbridge! (laughs) Um, That's amazing. Perfect name. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So it was the... It was someone's pen name. We don't know who. Well, FKKF. I, I cracked the code. <laughs> Did she have Maybe. a pet something? Not that I can a recall. A pony. Not that I can recall. But she, so she goes from, so in the early days of RT, she was a reviewer. And so I think I, you know, when you guys were doing the Sandra Brown episode, yeah. I sent, she reviewed one of Sandra Brown's early books and it's just, it's the strangest review I've ever read. There's something about dolphins, and yeah, it has real, yeah, nothing to do with the book. Really well, magnificent reviews, like yeah. that are it's it's like someone just dropped acid and wrote a right. review. You know what? Well, I'll find some of them and put them in show notes. Everybody, yeah. yeah. And then Flavia becomes sort of the gossip columnist. Yeah, and there's a lot of RT. gossip to be had in romance right. too. Exactly. Um, so yeah, so that was sort of Flav- that's Flavia in a nutshell. But then, there was also like an American Idol type competition that RT hosted. Oh, and Fla- quote unquote Flavia was one of the judges. Um, Wait for yeah. authors? Yes. <laughs> wow, because they also had the Mister Romance competition, which was right. a lot. A lot. We, have, yeah. we have some of those videotapes here, and oh. they are they are something. They're a lot. Maybe we're in a better place, everybody. Well, there were bad places. This is there were bad places, and it was a dark time. 
right? At least we're I mean, not doing that anymore. But I do think that what's interesting is this is what comes of a community when um, it's so thoroughly disrespected and um, poorly viewed by the rest of media, right? Mm-hmm. Like, then you end up with these these people who who and these these situations and these contests and the kind of jokey all the jokes become real in some ways right um right and now i think i mean i'm so when i first started writing catherine was still like the the name um in romance and now i i think there's so many other names and so Mm -hmm. it's nice that there's a broader view right um, but she's sure fun to talk to. So <laughs> if you get a chance to ever sit down, Catherine Falk, take it because she's fun to talk to. She's got stories about everybody. Well, I don't know how we're going to wrap this up. We just were. <laughs> we. <laughs> I'm going to reveal my new pen name, which is going to be like. Penelope Jenniferton. <laughs> Jenniferton. <laughs> and everyone will be like, gee, I wonder who that is. And I'm Procopia yeah. Jenniferton. <laughs> Every review of Penelope shall feature a dolphin. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so Steve, do you have like what's the craziest thing you've ever you've ever uncovered? Oh goodness gracious. Anything? Um, anything come immediately to mind? There's a lot. Um, you know, well, so one of, one of my favorite parts of the romance collection is our swag collection. Oh. Um, so, you know, in the mid-90s when this collection began, um, you know, our, uh, one of our librarians would go, went to several uh, RWAs and collected swag. And when I went to RWA last year, I continued this tradition. Um, and so when I opened that box, it was full of, like... <laughs> sachets of, uh, you know, dry flowers oh. and perfumed things mm. and stickers. Um, but there, one of the things in there is there's a Nora Roberts uh, tissue box for the McGregor's series. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. I was like, it's such a brilliant piece of, of swag. But, you know, there, and, and it's one of those collections where I'm always finding something, whether it's a, a ridiculous book cover with a a sticker that covers up a baby or um, all, all kinds of other things. Like, there's all kinds of stuff uh, hey, that pops up. Steve, do you have the Lisa Kleypas, uh book dump? Where So that's a, that's a, <laughs> let me explain what that means. Um, so a book dump is, uh, it's a standing, you've all seen this when you go into bookstores. It's the, it's the cardboard standing sure. shelf mm-hmm. thing that's specifically for a particular author, right? So it'll be like the new Nora Roberts and it's on right. like a special cardboard thing and it has Nora's like head coming out of it. Right. Um, I wish. That <laughs> Lisa Kleypas was the model for one of her book covers and they did a special book dump where she's sitting in full Regency regalia on top of it. Yeah, that was for her second book. So that was right Which is after out of print. You can't find it anywhere. Yeah. And and I it was right after she had won Miss Massachusetts mm-hmm. um, in the Miss America pageant. She had one and she had one and it was lost in a fire. Oh man! Wow. So That's, we do it, have we do have a bunch of stuff from uh, Susan Elizabeth Phillips. Uh, so we have like you know some enlarged covers, 
but also in large covers in like German and things. So it, mm -hmm. there's a lot of uh, sort of oversized items like that as well. Do you get a lot of requests to, from people like, hey, Bowling Green, would you like to have Steve, would you like to go through all my stuff? Like, Steve, would you like to go through all my stuff? <laughs> right. Yeah. So we try to have a, a slightly more delicate conversation than that. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's more of a, it is a conversation. So we kind of have a list of things that we like to collect. Um, and we will give that to people and say, hey, you know, if you have this stuff, um, you know, we're certainly willing to, to look at it and talk. There was a practice a long time ago here where people would just show up with boxes. Wow. And drop them How at the door. Ballsy. Oh, I sure. know. Um, <laughs> like, but we don't we don't allow that anymore. <laughs> but so, you know, so we do have In stuff comes where, Bertree Small with like her U-Haul of Right. <laughs> Elizabethan stuff. Oh my goodness. I mean I want that. The dolls. I wish you yeah, would have come to my house. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, like we worked with um the estate of, of Gwen Forster mm -hmm. uh, to get all of her papers and, and a lot of copies of her books. We have so many copies of her books right now. Um, you know, and, and we're, I'm going through that and processing it to make it more accessible and, and to, to make it available to researchers. You know, our goal is not to take as much stuff as it is sort of documentation. Sure. Um, but we're always, you know, we're happy to see weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, same. Yeah, we have the Barbara Cartland board game, which is a trip unto itself. And um, you are you are um, you're uh, archiving faded mates for us. The the transcripts. Yes, at least. so we're so. working with uh, some colleagues at the University of Michigan to create a sort of romance web archive, and faded mates is is on that list. Yay! Yay. Well, we're proud to be very proud. Um, this is amazing, and I am so thrilled that you joined us and that you made us read these crazy books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, okay, I, I'm gonna say I was happy to read that Jane Castle one, but I'm pretty sure this um, morning bros evening savage, I'm gonna need to. It was something. Oh, Steve, I have one more question. Sure. What is boy meets girl? That's a good question. Thank so... you. <laughs> So Boy Meets Girl was a newsletter um, published out of uh, St. Louis, I think. Okay. Or Kansas City. So after RT came on the scene, there were all these newsletters that popped up. Um, and uh, Boy Meets Girl was, was one of the best known. So it was actually published out of uh, Fairway, Kansas uh, by uh, Vivian Lee Jennings, uh, who still owns Rainy Day Books um, mm. in, in, in Kansas. And it was a, another paper of record. I have not ever encountered an issue of that. Wow, mm. really? I would Be love to have it, but I've never, I've never come across it. You mm. should say that online. I, I have a few times. Oh, really? And okay. no one knows what I'm talking about. Okay, well, so the reason <laughs> I'm going to tell everybody why I asked... Um, and you passed the test <laughs> because you knew what it was. So I was like, on page one of Tomorrow's Promise, like literally the inside facing page of the cover, there is, of course, the blur, the the pulled quote from the book that's in every romance novel. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the bottom, it says Sandra Brown is a writer who delivers consistent quality. She is a prolific writer. <laughs> 
quote. That's the quote. That's the wow. blurb. And then it's citation, boy meets girl. Right. I think she is a prolific writer is the saddest blurb I've I ever know. read. I was like, Especially <laughs> for someone like Sandra Brown, who literally, I mean, they could have called me. I was five, but they could have called me and I would be able to say something better. <laughs> She's going to be very important in my future. <laughs> my mom will discover her in 2020. <laughs> I don't know if you heard that, Steve, but my mom discovered Sandra Brown like three months ago, ago during quarantine and was like, I read this thriller by this woman, Sandra Brown. I was like, yes, I've heard of her mom. Yes. <laughs> familiar with her. I had someone um, text me the other day and be like, do you know Stacey Abrams writes romance? And I was like, Uh. are you guys trolling me right now? Because this is like my field. Yeah, I fucking know. I love it, though. People, they get so excited when they learn a thing about romance novels and then they say it to you and then you're in this awkward position of being like, yeah, I know. Right. (laughs) But it's, it's also, you know, I try to take those moments as a chance to then tell them 20 other things they didn't ask. Yeah, exactly. Like, did you know Rosemary Rogers hung out at Studio 54? Right. Did you guys know that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Um, the, so, anyway, Steve, every time we talk, you tell me something I don't know about romance, and that is why I love you. Oh, thanks. And I love sharing these things. Like, that, that's why we're here. You know, this, this has always been an under, underappreciated genre that wasn't well well cataloged. So here's here's the chance. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. That was incredible. Um, thanks. For, please come on again. Will you come on Theta Mates again? Of course. Anytime you find anything cool, don't tell Twitter. Tell us. Okay. <laughs> come on. <laughs> it would be really fun to have like a Steve Emma, Emma down like you know special special segment every once in a while like uh, Stefan on. Saturday Night Live. <laughs> maybe a little, a little less like Stefan. Maybe, maybe a we little less. We just need to give him a yeah. good fake name, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll give you a good pen name. <laughs> Your pen name. <laughs> and we'll just tack you on in like five-minute segments. Um, anyway, it was a joy to have you. We hope that you are, are, are doing well out there, that you are... You know, hunkered down with all your romance novels and not we're, going we're too up. wild. Yeah. <laughs> um, Steve, tell everybody where they can find you on Twitter. Sure. So uh, our the the library's Twitter account is bgsu underscore popcultlib, and then uh, my Twitter account is at stegan s t e g a n. And um, so follow follow both those accounts. They're really fun. Um, if you're interested in the history of the genre or the history of pop culture in general, I like it when they move their their little dolls of Mulder and Scully around the office. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they have this wild collection of pins. So if you don't follow them and you're into pins, uh, follow them. Um, if you are into pins, you can go to fateofmates.net and click on merch and find a thousand pins from the <laughs> Fate of Mates podcast. Um, also there you can find other cool stuff including transcripts which are slowly going up over the summer um and i have a book out uh called daring in the duke wherever books are sold uh it was great to have you steve everyone out there stay safe read good books wash your hands hi jen and sarah i am jane from utah um you can find me online on twitter and insta at the main Jane. Um, and I love your podcast. Huge fan. 
The book that flooded me is Ice Blue by Ann Stewart. Um, I believe she wrote it in 2007, um, but I became newly reacquainted with romance in uh, 2015, which is when I read this book and subsequently devoured as much romance as I could. Uh, so this book, Ice Blue, is equal parts delightful and problematic. Uh, there are a few issues of cultural appropriation, um, but it has all of my favorite tropes. It's plus-size heroine, she's competent and educated, and the hero is tall and sexy assassin, and he is biracial, and it's an enemies to lovers. And um, I build this book to friends as kind of romance's answer to Yakuza adventure films. And it is pretty bonkers. Um, there is a cult. There's honor killing, lots of explosions, sword fights. And um, Anne Stewart, the author, she really did her research on Japanese culture because half of the book does take place in Japan. And so you do, you know, you do learn a lot about that culture. Um, and there is a follow-up book called Fire and Ice, which incredibly is even crazier. So that's the book that blooded me, and I love your show. And, Sarah, I am so excited for uh, Daring and the Duke to come out this summer. So, yeah, see you later. Bye.